I was particularly drawn to uh, verses 9 and 10 of the psalm. Uh, I think that we uh, live in very turbulent days and uh, days when, as God's people, we need to be reminded that the Lord is our refuge. Um, But what I want to do this evening is I want to um, look at the whole of this psalm together um, under the main heading of a refuge in times of trouble. And it's worth saying at the beginning that Psalm 9 is not um, a psalm that's easily divided. It doesn't fall into sort of neat uh, categories or clear sections, each with a particular subject or concern. Some of the psalms very uh, clearly divided up by um, pauses and so on, and, and they're very uh, clear. there's clear divisions. But Psalm 9 is not like that. However, I think there are three uh, clear sort of threads of thought uh, that run through the psalm. And I want us to focus on these uh, three threads tonight. And uh, as I said, we'll stop particularly when we come to the second thread where we have verses 9 and 10 particularly drawn out for us. But uh, the first thing, the first thread that we see in this psalm is that of praise for the past. Praise for the past. David uh, praises and he thanks God for the past. You look at verses 1 and 2 particularly there. He says, I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvellous works. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou most high. And the psalmist here, he's determined, he's resolved even to praise Jehovah. I will, he says, praise thee. And he says he's going to do so with his whole heart. It's a wonderful expression that declares the sincerity and the fervency and the earnestness of the psalmist. And of course, we should always worship the Lord, shouldn't we? Not with a divided heart, but with our whole heart, because the Lord is worthy of our praise. Our praise should be with all our energies, it should be with all our being, with every faculty, every affection. It should be in all places and in all times, shouldn't it? How often do we fail in this regard to praise the Lord with our whole heart? Henry Law, in his little devotional book on the Psalms, says, Heaven is is a place of unwearied praise. And he says, Earth would be heaven begun if our whole hearts were wholly tuned to praise. I think that's a very true thought, isn't it? And we should want heaven, as it were, to come down. And we should want to be continually in praise of our God. Psalmist says, with my whole heart he's praised. And we should note that this praise and thanksgiving to God is primarily because of the fall and the destruction of the psalmist's enemies. David speaks of his enemies falling in verse 3 and perishing at God's presence. The very presence of God makes his enemies just to, to melt away, to disappear, to perish. He talks about them being destroyed in verse 5. In verse 15, he says they are sunk down into the pit that they made. They're in the very net that they had hid for others, for him. They've been taken. And we should note, of course, that this overthrowing of the enemy was a judicial overthrowing. It was right, it was just. If you look at verse 4, He says, for thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou sattest in the throne judging rights. This 
throwing down of the enemy is something that was right and good. And uh, this is brought out again in verse 16. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. This is something that God was doing and it was just, it was good. But just look at verse 6 for a moment with me. This is a particularly wonderful verse as David is speaking about the overthrowing of his enemies. And it says there, O thou enemy, in verse 6, this enemy that has wrought complete havoc. The enemy has destroyed cities, he, he says here. But just as these cities were obliterated and wiped off the face of the earth and remembered no more, so David says that his enemy will be too. His enemy will be utterly crushed. As Spurgeon likens this verse to that of a mighty conqueror, sort of standing over a, a, you know, the body of a defeated foe with his sword in his hand, and he's laughing at this vanquished foe. Uh, this, this previous enemy once boasted of their strength. They once were, were vaunting themselves and saying you know, how great they were and uh, saying you know, what strength and victories they had won. And you can almost see David doing this, can't you? Standing over Goliath in, in 1 Samuel 17. He had insulted God, Goliath had. He had mocked David, he had vaunted himself, trusted in himself, trusted in his armour, but he was defeated. And there's a, a picture here that as God's people, we have foes, foes within, foes uh, without, but uh, we can say, thanks be unto God, can't we, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we give great thanks, don't we, especially for the victory of Christ at Calvary. The enemy, Satan, and the, and the grave, they once boasted of their strength. Satan thought that he was victorious, didn't he? Death thought that it had added the saviour to its list of, you know, of, of all the foes that it had conquered. But Christ, in a sense, he stands over Satan and he says, Oh, thou enemy! Destructions are come to a perpetual end. And you can almost... You see, you know, Christ, as it were, he's standing by the grave, doesn't he? And, he? and he says, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And for us as believers, we stand with Christ in that victory and we can look at Satan and we can look at the grave and we can say, enemy, your destructions have come to an end. You may have destroyed thousands, millions of others, and their memorial may have perished, but you enemy, you are defeated. And that's why David says at the end of verse 14, I will rejoice in thy salvation. Satan's a defeated foe. And we look forward to that day, don't we, when he will be cast into the lake of fire. When as verse 17 says there, that the wicked shall be turned into hell. When Satan's empire shall perish, forever. And that will be a, a very solemn day, but a day of great victory and rejoicing for the people of God. And so we see here David in the first place, he looks back and he praises God for the past. But the second thread that runs through this psalm is that uh, David, we see here, shows faith in the future. Faith in the future. David looks at what the Lord has done in the past, and he then declares with confidence his future security. For David, the future was not uncertain. Look at verses 5 
uh, verses 7, I should say, following. He says, but the Lord shall endure forever. The Lord shall endure forever. Literally, the Lord shall sit forever. Or the Lord shall be enthroned forever. He has an unchanging dominion. He has an everlasting kingdom. And that's what David is referring to here. And and he's saying, look, 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 when I look back and I see your past deliverances, I can look forward and I know that you're, you're still in charge. You still reign. That you are on your throne and it will endure forever. I think it's interesting just to compare here the stability of God's kingdom with even just our current governments. You know, when our current Prime Minister took office, uh, we were told, weren't we, that his landslide victory would basically guarantee him at least another term in office. But how changeable and insecure the kingdoms of this world are. But God's throne is forever. It's a throne prepared for judgment, David says in verse 7. He will judge this world in righteousness, he says in verse 8. Paul actually quotes this verse when he's preaching on Mars Hill in in Acts chapter 17. I want to turn uh, to that passage, Acts chapter 17 and verse 31. You remember how Paul is on Mars Hill and he points to this altar for the unknown God and he begins to describe this God to them, this God that is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't dwell in temples made of hands and so on. He's the one in verse 28 that we live and move and have our being. But then we're told in verse 31 that he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Paul, as he so often did, quotes from the Old Testament and often particularly from the Psalms. And he comes back to this verse here. He shall judge the world in righteousness. And so it doesn't matter as believers what will happen to us because God will execute judgments. He's upright. He's good. He is a refuge, as we're told in verse 9. We can run to him. And he never forsakes, as he says in verse 10. In verse 18, we're told that the needy shall not always be forgotten. And here we see God's mercy, we see God's grace, even when God's people seem to be utterly downtrodden, even when uh, everything seems to be against them and there seems to be no hope. The psalmist reminds us here, they will not be forgotten. Their expectation, he says, of the poor shall not perish forever. You see, God's people, even when they're distressed, will one day find deliverance. And friends, what, a, what confidence we can have then in the future. I think this is particularly applicable for us as believers today as we look out across the world and we see so much that is bleak spiritually, as we see so much that is hostile to God and to God's word. We can, we can rest assured that he will deliver his people. We have a God enthroned in heaven executing justice. He will succor us and help us even in times of trouble as he describes it in verse 9. And we see this particularly in these verses 9 and 10. And as I said, I just want to particularly pause here at these verses because I think they're particularly helpful for us to consider in these days. As I said, we live in very turbulent times, just like David did. David's life was one of constant ups and downs and turmoil and turbulence, wasn't it? 
But David here in these two verses gives us really an antidote um, as we look into the future. David writes there, The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. And I think there's just... I just want to bring out three things here that David does that I think are helpful for us. And the first thing that David does here is is consolation. He consoles himself. He consoles himself with the truth that through everything, the Lord will be his refuge. He feels oppressed. That conveys the idea of being crushed or being utterly overwhelmed. But his hope rests in the Lord's. The Lord, he says, will be his refuge. And this uh, word refuge here could be uh, translated as a high place. David already described the Lord back in verse 2 as, O thou most high. And the refuge here speaks of something that's high, some lofty place that's out of the reach of the enemy. It's like a fortress on the summit of a hill, some sort of inaccessible rock that no one can get to. It's a place that speaks, doesn't it, of safety and security. Somewhere that you can run to in times of trouble. And this is a theme, of course, that runs all the way through the Bible, all the way through Scripture, especially in the Psalms. Just turn with me to some of the places. Psalm 18 and verse 2. You have these same thoughts here. Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock. And my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. What about you move on into Psalm 32 and verse 7? The same idea of a place that we can run to. Thou art my hiding place, in verse 7. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. And it's all the same Hebrew expression that we have in our psalm, in Psalm 9. What about Psalm 46, that very um, familiar psalm, Psalm 46 and verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And you know how the psalm goes on, therefore will not we fear that the earth be removed, nor the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. It's a wonderful expression, especially when you think that this was a psalm for the sons of Korah. And you remember how, the son, that, how Korah, the earth opened up and he was swallowed. And yet the sons of Korah can write, we will not fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. The Lord is our refuge. What about Psalm 91? In verse 2, this is a a theme that we just find continually as you go through the scriptures. Psalm 91 verse 2, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him will I trust. And there's so many places you could just turn, for example, to Deuteronomy chapter 33. Another place, this time Moses writing. Wonderful words in Deuteronomy 33 and verse 27. He says here, 
the eternal God is thy refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee. And shall say, destroy them. It's the same concept again. The place where we can run to. A place of refuge where the enemy can't come. He thrusts them out and he destroys them. They're those, as we thought about, shall perish at his very presence. But perhaps the one that I, I like the best is in Nahum. Nahum chapter 1. Nahum chapter 1, sandwiched between Micah and Habakkuk. Nahum chapter 1. And again, we have this same Hebrew word here. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knoweth them that trust in him. And back here in this psalm, Psalm David comforts himself with this truth. This truth that God in his infinite grace has the power to lift his people out of their troubles and above their troubles so that the child of God may lodge in this impregnable and inaccessible fortress, a fortress of God's protection. And we too in our times of trouble when life seems overwhelming and crushing, we, we must should console ourselves with this truth. That the Lord is our refuge. He's the one we can run to. You see, David didn't take comfort in the rocks where he so often hid when he was fleeing for his safety. He didn't console himself of his own might and his own strength. Nor did he scan his army, his his vast army and all the mighty men that were around him and take solace in them. Rather, David turns his, his eyes heavenwards and he focuses his attention upon the Lord, upon Jehovah, Because David knew that vain is the help of man. Wesley wrote a a wonderful hymn that we're going to sing in a few moments, Jesus, lover of my soul. Supposedly, Wesley wrote it uh, when he helped a little sparrow that had come in out of a storm and was being pursued by a hawk. It's probably one of these fanciful stories that's growing legs over the years. But it's it's quite a nice story when you read it. But he wrote these words, whether... That was the occasion or not, but it says, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O my Saviour, hide, till the storm of life be past, safe into the haven guide. O receive my soul at last. And the second verse says, Other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, ah, leave me not alone, still support and comfort me. And you see, it's in the Lord that our refuge is, isn't it? And we can hang our lives upon him. He's the one who covers our defenceless head. And so David consoles himself with this truth that the Lord is his refuge. But then he also shows a determination. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says, and they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, those who know God, not superficially knowing him, not intellectually knowing him, but those who've really and experientially who know him, those who put their trust in Jehovah. And he says, those who know him will put their trust. And you notice that he says it, they'll put their trust in the name of the Lord. It's Jehovah. And we've been thinking about some of the names of Jehovah, haven't we, with the, 
the, the children on a Sunday morning, and we can draw comfort from all of these different names, these names that show us what the Lord is like. We thought about things like Jehovah Jireh, haven't we? The Lord will provide. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. He's by our side. Jehovah Tzikenyu, the Lord is our righteousness. And you can go through all the different names of God and, and see how, how we can draw uh, uh, comfort from them. How we can, as it were, suck the honey from the, the rock, as it were, and we can, and we can feast upon these things and, and as we trust in the Lord's. His name displays his character, and it's a name that's excellent. It's a name that's wonderful. Just look at the previous psalm, and look at how the psalm begins and how the psalm ends. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. And many people put these two psalms together, that one feeds into the other. You end the psalm in verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. I will praise thee, O Lord with my whole heart. And friends, this evening, the more we know of God's character, the more we know of his attributes, the more confidence we will have in him. Those who are ignorant of God have every reason to tremble when they're in trouble. But you see, knowledge leads to resolute faith and trust. Matthew Henry said this, the better God is known, the more he is trusted. The better God is known, the more he is trusted. And so this should, this should be our prayer tonight. Oh, that we would know more of God's, more of Christ our Saviour, more of what he's done for us, more of his love. Our prayer should be that we would decrease so that he and he would increase. Because then when we know more of him, we will trust him more. Perhaps one of the reasons why we become so fearful when we hear the news, when perhaps we, when, we, uh, when we see things going on around us and we become afraid is because we don't know enough of God's and what God is like and all that he can do. The psalmist David says here, and they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. But notice a third thing in these verses that David does, because David also has a motivation. He has this consolation, he has this determination, but then there's this motivation. We could ask ourselves, well, why is David so confident? Why is he going to continue to trust in God? And to to put it very simply, it's because of the Lord's unfailing faithfulness. That's why David's going to carry on trusting the Lord. He reminds us here that the Lord does not forsake his people. You see in verse 10, And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. You see, he reminds us here that that God is faithful. Even in the midst of extreme trials, even when the enemy seems to overwhelm us, even when we seem crushed and oppressed as David did here, God is faithful. Remember the words of Hebrews 13, verse 5. He says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Well, you remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in John's Gospel, speaking of his sheep, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hands. That promise back in Hebrews 13 that I just read, I'm I'm sure 
many of you know this already, but in the original Greek it actually contains five negatives. And so you can read it in this way, I will never, never leave you, nor ever, ever, ever forsake you. I mean, God couldn't make it any plainer, could he, or any simpler for us, and any clearer. And his word cannot be broken. That's why we just sung that hymn, How Firm a Foundation, ye saints of the Lord. That soul we read, that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavour to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Whoever wrote that hymn obviously knew the Greek of that verse. And that's why David could write, couldn't he, in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Remember the words of Top Lady, a sovereign protector I have, unseen yet forever at hand unchangeably faithful to save, almighty to rule and command. And you know, friends, you don't find a single record in all of Scripture of God abandoning one of his children. And can we, as God's people, not only testify of this in our own lives, that God has not forsaken us and left us? You see, our friends may leave us, the rich, the noble, the great, they all may forget about us, but God never will. There may be times when it appears that not a, not a single soul cares for us in this world, but it's not so with God. When God loves, he always loves. Believers, this evening we need to remind ourselves that we shall never be without a friend as long as there is a God. And so we've seen in, this, in these verses here this wonderful comfort that we can draw from these verses that as David, as he can as he consoles himself, as he thinks into the future, as he has this confidence in in all that God will be to him in in the future to come. But there's a final thread that comes through this psalm. There's a final thing that he does. He's not only praised God for the past, he not only has faith for the future, but we notice that he prays for the present. He prays for the present. You notice this particularly in verses 13 and 14. And then again in verses 19 and 20, he takes these two things, he takes this, what he's seen in the past, he takes about his confidence in the future and then he brings it all together and and he brings his prayers to God. And he prays for the Lord to have mercy on him now in his current affliction. He takes all his, his troubles with this confidence in the Lord and he places the troubles in the hands of God's. He feels that even perhaps death awaits. You notice that in verse 13. Death is here likened to sort of a prison with bars and gates guarding it. But the Lord is the one who can lift him out of the gates of death. He feels like it's, you know, the jaws of death are right there to swallow him up. He's sunk low. But David knows that underneath are, are God's everlasting arms. And there are times, aren't there, when we can be brought low. Perhaps because of sin, perhaps because of sickness, perhaps because of our situation, and and we can feel so low even at the very gates of death. But the Lord's arm is not short that it cannot save, and the psalmist prays with this desire that even in the midst of such troubles, that God would, would help him to praise him. 
Notice what he says there in, those, in verse 14, that I may show forth all thy praise. David wants to be delivered, not from a selfish reason, not because he just wants to be alleviated of his suffering and his pain and his affliction, but he wants to be delivered so that others would see God's mercy and that they would praise the Lord too. He wants to be lifted away from the gates of death to the gates of Zion so that others will see the mercy of his gods. You see, the gates of Zion are a very public place. He wants to be publicly delivered so that there would be public praise. And David has full confidence in prayer here. And the question, perhaps for us, is do we? Do we have confidence in prayer? Do we turn to the Lord in our troubles? Or do we, as we say perhaps so often do, we think we can solve our problems by ourselves, we think that we've got the answers, we think that we can resolve it. David here turns to the Lord, he goes on in verse 19 and he asks the Lord to arise. Remember he's been speaking of enemies and the call here of David is to war. He's asking the Lord to rise up so that the enemies would not prevail. He wants them to be put in fear, that the nations would realise their frailty and their, and their weakness. Some people uh, translate that in that way in verse 19, Arose, O Lord, let not man prevail. Some of them change it to, say, frail flesh. And the point is this, he wants them to see their frailty and their humanity, as it were, and that they would not prevail, that they would not uh, come against him. And, and in a sense, here's a good prayer for us, isn't it? You know, Lord, will you not arise in these days? Will you not show en- the enemies that you are gods? I mean, there's enemies to truth on every hand, There's foes, aren't there, opposed to the word, and they are seemingly prevailing today. We can pray, will you not arise? Will you not judge the heathen so that they will see who is enthroned forever? Will you not cause your name to be feared once more? These are are great and, and noble prayers, and we should pray with confidence as we consider what God has done in the past. David looks back sees all the deliverance he's had in the past. God, will you not deliver me now? And as God's people, can we not pray the same? Lord, we've seen what you've done in the past. We can read about it, not only in your word, but we can read it in church history, how you've come, how you've delivered, how you've risen up. And how nations begin to realise and know themselves to be but men. I read a biography of Cromwell, and one of the interesting things from the life of Cromwell, for all the faults that Cromwell had like any man, was that when he was in charge of the model army and he was on that, he had this great army that was so disciplined and so on, there was fear fell on other nations in Europe, seeing his army, seeing the godliness and so on. And in a sense, isn't that what we we desire today? that there would be this fear that would fall upon people because of God's. And so we pray, put them in fear, O Lord. It's not that we, would, we wish them to be wiped out. It's not that we wish that they would be made as nothing and come to dust, but that they would know God's. That's our desire, isn't it? And so as I close this evening, may we follow David's pattern here. 
Praise God for the past. Yes, that's what we should do. Have faith in the future. God is our refuge. We should trust him and love him. But let's also pray for the presence, that the name of the Lord, that name which is an excellent name, that that name would be glorified in these days.